This is AniGamers podcast number 36, recorded on Friday, April 22nd, 2011, from Anime Boston. The following episode is actually not one of our typical discussion episodes. It's a recording of a panel I attended at Anime Boston 2011 called Experts of Fan Controversy and uh, hosted by anime fandom researcher Alex Levitt. The quality of the recording isn't too great uh, because I recorded it with my portable recorder rather than my nice microphone that I hook up to my computer. But uh, the panel's got some really smart folks uh, from around the anime industry on it, so it's definitely worth a listen. Without further ado, let's get into the recording. Enjoy the panel. Uh, so we have like 30 seconds, I believe. Um, but the room isn't full. <laughs> so I really want to get people in here. So let's, let's do this. Um, when I count to three, Everyone like cheer as loud as they can, <laughs> and then maybe people in the hallway will be like, "Holy crap, we're totally missing out on something awesome!" <laughs> All right, so ready? One, two, three. <laughs> practices versus their consumption practices. So I think that's why I'm here today, at least. <laughs> uh, I'm Clarissa Graffio. I am one-third of the host of the Anime World Order podcast, and I also write for Otaku USA, USA Magazine. Uh, my name is Ada Palmer. I am a professor in the history department at Texas A&M University, and I write on manga history and manga criticism, particularly the works of Osamu Tezuka, and I run tezukainenglish.com. Cool. Um, so, the title of the panel again is Experts of Fan Controversy. We have the experts, but where's the controversy? Um, so, I'll be introducing a bunch of topics over the next hour and a half, um, and we'll do a kind of game show style format. So, the, 
the panelists up here will um, rant if they so wish, or otherwise explain themselves on a certain topic or issue. Um, and then after a certain amount of time, I'll put a stop to discussion around that topic, and then we'll go into the points. Now, the points don't matter. However, they are a bit of an issue in terms of fan controversy as well. What we're going to be doing is, if you agree with one of the panelists up here, raise your hand when we go into the points session. I'll call on you, and what's going to happen is you'll name an anime series. If it's popular, we'll throw it into Google, and the number of hits that Google tells us <laughs> is the number of points that people get up here. <laughs> wow. So we, it might be a controversy whether these things are actually popular or not. Um, so with that in mind, let's do a quick test. Uh, Clarissa, yes. subs or dubs? Subs all the way. All right, subs. Does anyone agree? Yes. In you have to Name a random anime series. Bleach. Bleach. All right. So we go into Google. Can we use your email address for all of our spam folders? <laughs> <laughs> and we have 109 million hits. It's over 9,000. <laughs> Congratulations, Carlos. <laughs> you get 109 million points. A bow. A bow. is a perfect fan controversy that I would like to discuss today is piracy. So let's begin with a, with a short uh, case study that happened recently. Funimation, a, an anime distributor in America, sued 1,307 uh, random anonymous people who uh, su supposedly downloaded one of the titles that they had a license to. Now, obviously this might have been a marketing stunt, due that they sued elite downloaders. Um, and there's also the issue of whether fan subs are an issue anymore. It seems like streaming sites, uh, especially illegal ones, are kind of picking up the steam. So if you were to type in Bleach uh, streaming in Google, you might actually not get Crunchyroll as the first hit. Um, so with that in mind, um, Jennifer, why don't we start with you? All right. Um, well, I think that the Funimation case in particular is a little bit of an exception because they were suing people for One Piece episodes that Funimation was already streaming legally. Um, I, of course, there are a lot of people who say, a lot of fans who say that they prefer um, fan subs for a lot of different reasons aside from just the, the cost of it, right? Like, there's the idea that, um, oh, like, like some people like seeing karaoke's with like crazy font colors and things like that. Um, and then there's people who like care about the uh, translation differences, even though some people some people can and some people can't actually tell the difference between some of those. Um, I think that um, while I will probably be making um, a, a bit more, I, I don't want to say this too, too, too explicitly, but I'll, be pro I'll probably be making a little bit more of a defense of piracy, as terrible as that sounds. Um, not so much defense, maybe playing devil's advocate um, throughout the panel. I think that this is probably an example where the fans had a little uh, we're, we're, we're a bit guiltier than they would be if they were just, you know, downloading fan subs for like Madoka Magica or something that just came out. Do we have a response? So Ed, uh, we're talking about anime here. What, what's the scene looking like for manga nowadays? Well, I guess the manga side is, I mean, it's, it's in concept flux. I mean, consider what happened, what was in the news last week in regards to Tokyo popping. 
the hundreds and hundreds of licenses that are there. I'm sure that a number of people are going to, you know, during that lag time when uh, publishers are going to go try to acquire some of those titles, a number of people are possibly going to turn it towards the internet. Because, um, well, obviously, it's going to take time from the industry side to uh, arrange those contracts, maybe up to a year or two. Um, so it's going to be a, bit, a little bit of a risk for anybody to take a chance on titles that were maybe you know, B-list titles, C-list titles that took about that. Um, you know, titles that possibly were about to go out of print um, may forever be out of print. And, you know, in those circumstances, I mean, even as a member of the industry, um, you know, it's not inexcusable because of uh, the ramifications there are uh, to the creators. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it is understandable. And, uh, you know, as long as, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, um, you know, fans aren't necessarily going to uh, particularly go through you know, extreme means to uh, jeopardize existing licenses that are out there. Um, you know, particularly if they're readily available. Uh, you know, uh, Piracy is going to be here to stay, and I think it's, you know, it should be something that should be controlled not only by um, you know, legal means, I, I think that's, that might be going a little bit too far in some, in some cases. The case of having to actually go sue people might be a little extreme, um, but it should also be controlled by the fandom itself. And I also feel that maybe recently that's kind of not been considered as much by the fandom as a whole. So Chris, uh, if Piracy is here to stay, um, what does that mean for your domain name, animeondvd.com? No, I have actually owned it for two years, so it's not that big deal. I sold that off when I clicked and the DVD was going out the door. Um, the, I've had one of those evolving opinions of piracy over the years, where I'm not exactly for it, but it's one of those forces that pushes change on a market. Because they are the bleeding edge people, to a degree. There's always going to be those that will say, I never want to buy. I'm never going to touch anything because they want to avoid the man or whatever. But, you know, if the simulcast side has changed because of piracy. They said we have to get that market. They can't monetize it yet, but they want it. You know, the One Piece thing is actually that oddball because that was the Japanese company saying, sue them now. And Funimation being kind of a jokester with it and saying, well, we're going to, you know, sue that number of people to do that. Just to point out the foolishness of it. Because they knew that it was going to get thrown out. And that was kind of a nod to the people that are aware of it. It's like, we're going to sue the elite people. But... Piracy is always going to be there, and it's especially with the anime side, the manga side is a little different. I think that'll change more once tablets get in people's hands, and those kind of apps get out there a lot more. Um, but it's always going to push what can be done. The only thing holding anime back right now is most of the sites don't do high definition streaming. Fans can still get that in high quality that from piracy that they can't from a legal publisher. Even from the owner of the content, they're not streaming it that way. So there is a need for it because it will push the Japanese to do it that way eventually. So, Ada, if piracy is all about the changing market, uh, I believe you have a cool anecdote about um, some Italians and the manga. Oh, oh, you're thinking of the contemporary anecdotes, right? I've been spending this entire time remembering a letter by Machiavelli written in 1497 complaining about this new printing press thing and how everyone is pirating his play and he's not getting paid for it. 
because technology is the enemy of the author getting paid for his work, and this has been true ever since there has been technology and money involved in publishing things. So we're experiencing, yet again, growing pains as we transfer from one medium to a new one being present, just as has been true in European history for a very, very long time. Um, but you're thinking of the contemporary anecdote of Italian manga companies that had a habit, especially about 10 or 15 years ago, just putting things out without ever talking to Japan. I, I heard which they the, still do from time to time. There's a beautiful blackjack edition in Italian, which <laughs> the productions was not made aware of, and which contains several stories that you can't get anywhere because the Japanese won't let you have them, but the Italians are like, um, And then the Italian manga companies change their names and move on. But actually, the blackjack company is a much more respectable one, so it's it's reasonable. But I heard that there was also some underground printing. Oh yeah, I mean, you when you're in when you're in Italy and you go into a train station, there'll be a little kiosk and it'll have weird little tiny, skinny, single-issue volumes of stuff that um, that you can never trace afterwards. Is a good way of putting it. Um, but especially because I study history of copyright. I tend to view it as almost a natural disaster-like force, um, piracy, rather than questioning whether it's how you want to judge the morals of people that are involved. Looking at it from the opposite direction, it is a force that exists. The people producing and publishing these things then react to the existence of that force, just as someone reinforcing a harbor is going to re react to the existence of tides. And that means that as trends in piracy change, the way they affect what gets put out changes a lot. For example, one will observe in recent manga sales trends that piracy has been affecting more mature seinen and jose titles a little less than it has been affecting teen titles, because many more teens are downloading stuff and not buying it compared to the number of adult buyers who are still going to the store and actually buying the thing. That has therefore changed the profitability ratio to some extent between teen and adult titles. That kind of factor is something that doesn't get discussed a lot, but is very true. The fact of piracy changes the degree to which different releases are profitable for companies and therefore affects and controls to some extent what we get and what a company can afford to put out. So Clarissa, uh, Ed was talking earlier about titles that are, are available to fans to purchase. Right. And now I know that AWO has this intricate balance between getting access to awesome shows that might obviously not be available as a localized version, sure. and then obviously supporting the industry. So can you say a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, the fact of the matter is that you have two kind of conflicting um, motivations between the people who are responsible for releasing things, licensing and releasing things commercially in English, versus the people who are interested in maybe reading or watching some of these things. And so the companies have to, at the end of the day, do what's going to make money. So if something is not going to sell, they just can't necessarily take a chance on it. Um, and there's also, and there's a lot of different reasons why things might sell. So there might be works that are really, really good, but they're just not very marketable to enough people to make it worthwhile. Especially, a lot of times you have imbalances where you have titles that are really well respected, really popular in Japan. Nobody in America cares, right? Um, and so 
you know, the, the license would cost a ton of money for a company to put out, and they know they're not going to sell enough copies. That said, it's still a really good work, and some of these are also really historically important. So especially if you're a fan that has some interest in the history of the medium and in what works are really influential on the stuff that's coming out now, you really want to see that stuff. And it's all well and good to say, well, learn Japanese, but as somebody who's trying to do that, I can attest to the fact that it's not easy. Um, and so, you're always going to have people that are going to want to see stuff that the market just can't support. And so that's where a lot of that comes in. And so we want people to see some of those things. You know, I think Rose of Versailles is like the perennial example, right? Rose of Versailles is this hugely important show. It's still really great. I think it really holds up. I, I think people should see it. It is notoriously stuck in licensing hell. Probably nobody is ever going to be able to get it and bring it out here, either the anime version or the manga. So I would love to be able to direct people to an English edition that they could support. And in the absence of that, we will try to recommend that, hey, you know, if people can import it from Japan and, you know, give money to the Japanese companies that way, great. But we want people to be able to see it. And so, yeah, sometimes we will recommend stuff that's only available through Scanlation or Fansub in that event. We try to stick to um, recommending that people purchase things that have been licensed if they're in print and available. You know, so we just have to try and balance that. We don't want to ignore good or important works because of these business entanglements that affect the domestic licensing. So Anna, how's licensing hell going? <laughs> or I guess more specifically, um, since you have a lot of contact, obviously, with the Japanese publishers, um, can you also talk a little bit about just piracy going on in Japan? Because it seems like they're really concerned with the local context and not really about international fans so much. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, uh, licensors tend to focus on the region, that, or just content uh, holders, uh, IP holders, tend to focus on the regions that they are primarily in to begin with. So, for the longest time, uh, Japanese license uh, licensors weren't they were they were well aware of the piracy internationally. Um, they were more focused on the, on the regions where it was impacting them the most. Uh, initially, they were you know, going insane about about South Korea. They kind of resolved things there. They did a lot of things in Taiwan, and now there's a huge uh, manga industry there where Japanese publishers are actually working in Taiwan. Um, you know, there are places where they've completely gipped up, like Indonesia, uh, and there are places that are like the Wild Wild West, uh, and I'm not talking about Spaghetti Westerns, but you know, with what's happening in, in Italy. Um, but they're, I mean, they're aware of what's happening in the, in, in, in the U.S. and North America, Europe. Um, but yeah, they've got their own issues. Um, I, you know, some, some of you might recall last year, Shonen Jump um, had a small little letter uh, on their contents page uh, for one of their issues, uh, reminding uh, their readers and fans to, to not pirate. Uh, and uh, you know, Shonen Jump isn't necessarily going through financial uh, 
you know, pains right now, but uh, because they're still the, the largest circulated manga magazine out there. Uh, but many of their properties are often uh, scanned, uh, put up on the places as extreme as, as YouTube. Um, you know, I mean, that's taking a lot of time and effort, uh, often days before the magazine even goes on sale. Uh, and while it's not necessarily impacting the overall sales uh, for their Tonkobong, uh, just magazine sales in general are, are, are on a decline globally, and not, not, not exclusively in Japan. So, uh, you know, they, they, they are uh, trying to um, you know, slow, slow, down, slow down the tide, but at the same time, I think the Japanese are very well aware of how large their market is, uh, how, how deep uh, manga culture is uh, to the Japanese culture as a whole. Um, you know, they, they are willing to allow for things such as doujinshi to continue to uh, take place and not just have conventions but consignment shops in, in major uh, cities. So uh, it's not that they're turning a blind eye against piracy and copyright infringement, but um, if you are aware of you know, the things that are happening behind the scenes at uh, some of these doujin events or you know, if, if you, you do read those letters from uh, Shueisha, or you do follow uh, the many uh, cases where people are actually being imprisoned or at least uh, charged with uh, crimes regarding piracy in Japan. Uh, you know, this is something that is uh, happening, and this is something that they are, uh, that the Japanese rights holders are increasingly wanting to see happen more so overseas as well. And that is why they're was a creation of a, uh, a piracy coalition last year, and in which there were way more uh, Japanese publishers that were for this uh, than the American publishers, uh, just because of scale. And the impetus for that was not so much um, the fact that the manga or you know, anime industry is growing here, or there are more fans here, but uh, it's because of as has been mentioned a couple of times uh, by a few of us here, Chris including, technology is changing things. Mm. And it's the future of digital manga that is forcing the Japanese side to look at piracy in a lot closer way. So Chris, is yes, it's a sidebar for that too. Um, one of the things that Japan's also doing with that's different than most other countries is their population problem, where there's less kids growing up into it, so their numbers are shrinking. Uh, I was reading recently that they have the top five most published newspapers in the world. So they have a lot of older people that are still very much in print. So their drop-off for like the sign-in and everything else is still slower, but the growth they're not seeing in the other things. So that's why they're dealing with their home problem a bit. But they are starting to focus elsewhere in the world because where the growth is going to be if their population problem doesn't resolve in some way. So they have an odd issue that most other countries don't with it. Yeah, here we've always got new fans coming in to the business constantly. There, they're not getting that kind of growth, so they're shifting the technology side as well, but they're not as focused on it because of the large market they're still serving of the older audience. And actually, that, that is very true. The, the, uh, the lines uh, that are specifically moving into this new technology uh, and are focusing on piracy tend to be the ones that focus on shoujo and shonen more so than seinen and josei. 
the saving market is the largest market in Japan. So, um, you know, it's very healthy because, as Chris said, there's a large uh, population, part of the population that is older in Japan, and with fewer and fewer uh, new readers, new new consumers into the marketplace. Um, you know, they're really trying to protect the few. The traditionals. The tra yeah, yeah. And, and the more, you know, I guess you can say hardcore. All right, so we have reached the end of piracy. Um, if you were not here at the beginning of the panel, um, let me reiterate the scoring mechanism that we're using. Um, I will go down the line, and if you agreed with our lovely panelists, uh, when I call their name, raise your hand, and I'll pick on someone in the audience to name an anime series. We'll put it into Google, and the number of points awarded to each panelist is the number of about hits that appear on Google. So if you like what they said, then give them a really popular anime, but if you didn't like what they said, then you can screw them over with something really obscure. <laughs> um, so let's go with Ada. Uh, Naruto, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I like your natural disaster bit. 196 million points. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go with Clarissa. Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> <laughs> I could possibly break the billion mark. Only 29 million. Maybe just Dragon Ball. I don't think you can take it back. Jennifer. In the back. Let's give her Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to run through all the really popular ones early. <laughs> 136 million. Can we repeat? You cannot repeat. However, you can choose iterations. So Dragon Ball is still on the table. How about Ed? Death Note? All right. That's not very me at all. 23.3 million. And finally, Chris. Alright, uh, Baka 2 build test. Oh. <laughs> 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 what did he do wrong? Uh, at least he was anti, come on. <laughs> <laughs> if it just showed up, Baka, yeah, there you go. Only 1.4 million. <laughs> Clarissa, it seems like you're laughing a lot. Um, 
No, I mean, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot, and I think that it's kind of a, an issue of, like, running a delicate balance. Because, I mean, on the one hand, I know that as somebody who's been really immersed in anime and manga for a long time, and as somebody who's, like, trying to learn Japanese, I am interested in, you know, getting as close as I can to the original um, with the translations and everything. And I know that I prefer stuff subtitled. I don't really usually watch a lot of dubs um, and things like that. So I tend to side with um, the fans a lot more often, and I really don't like when they do things like randomly changing the names to sound more American. I don't think that that's necessary. I think that's based on kind of a an offensive and outmoded attitude among a lot of entertainment executives that American audiences are too stupid or too racist to be able to tolerate foreign sounding names. I think, you know, we need to assume more highly of people and I think people are going to be fine. Um, but, you know, I think that there is a limit. I mean, I think that there is a lot of, there are a lot of people who are either just too far, like they, the requests go too far. And so there's a point at which, um, especially for, you know, if we want anime and manga to grow, and if we want it to thrive, you have to make things available in such a way that they're going to be accessible to people that are not super hardcore otaku. And this is the kind of problem, I mean, sales of anime and manga are in the toilet, basically. You know, I, I know we were talking um, uh, at the Carl Masek panel, I know not a lot of people were there because it was early in the morning, um, and talking about the fact that Carl Masek was able to sell 40,000 copies of the like promo dub VHS of the beginning of Macross um, back in the days where you had to actually like mail order it. Um, now, Anime companies are lucky if they sell 2,000 copies of something. I don't know if people realize that that's where the numbers are, but I mean, that's 2,000 DVDs is good for anime now. And I think that some of that may be due to the fact that it's just not accessible. If you look at the occasional, you know, America-Japan co-productions, um, things like, you know, even if they're not good, but things like the Halo uh, anthology, things like the Gotham Knight, or even stuff like Afro Samurai that, you know, is more Western accessible um, and that's released in such a way that it's targeted towards a wider audience, those sell way better than any of the other anime releases. So I think that we have to negotiate kind of a balance on that issue because I want stuff to be successful enough for people to keep releasing it. So I think you need to make it accessible to other people. Um, but at the same time, I don't like, you know, there are types of changes that are just pointless. I don't like the overly, the over-Americanization of stuff. So, I mean, it's, it's a tricky issue. So Chris, You've had a pretty uh, vibrant community uh, on animeondvd.com. How have you personally dealt with the craziness of fans? Um, they've got their opinions, and they're I mean, more entitled to them. You know, it's the ones that deal with it rationally that I enjoy. 
the ones that just flame out, just want to ignore. Do you have any examples? Uh, I, I've burned that out, man. Yeah, it's just, you, you after doing this for so long, you just, they, they come in with the crazy demands. And it, most of the time, it's not demands for something they want, it's a justification for not buying. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah. this didn't have this particular kind of honorific, or the dub was, oh, it has a dub, screw that, I'm not buying it. It doesn't have a dub, I'm not buying it. It's just coming up with justification for not buying. That's always at the end of the sentence, I'm not buying. Yeah. Um, but stuff like what we're talking about with these, the, the changes and everything, I used to be, like your rails very against it, but at the same point, I came to a different conclusion, was that they're not made for us at that point. Sailor Moon, I watched that, reviewed that several times, can't stand it. <laughs> I'm not that big of a fan of the original, but look at what it brought into the industry. Pokemon's still on the air. I mean, we can rail about it all we want, but that's bringing fans. My kids are huge fans and watch other shows because of it. My daughter's reading Shoujo Beat now because she started with Pokemon. Now, so all these changes, they infuriate us, and I would like to get both versions, but they're not coming over to serve us. They're coming over to serve a wider audience. And it's, it helps us in the long run because it is a long game because we do get those people eventually. They grow up and they're like, I remember that. And then they come into it. Next thing you know, they're reading and buying all these other things. It, it's a cyclical thing, but it's not made. Pokemon wasn't made for us. It, you know, Sailor Moon, we wanted to be, but if you really watch it, it was made for little girls. Yeah. You know? And what they brought over was made for little girls. So, you know, it's, I'm not in favor of like, the Akira problem with the live action movie and the garbage with that. Oh, yeah. All the, that stuff like that's a whole different ball of wax. But the anime that's come over that's made to get a wide mainstream audience, they don't want us. Yeah, it's, it's like giving me the Bakken test numbers. That's what AMA fans are. What they want is an Naruto. They want the Bleach numbers. They want that. We don't care. Even if we said, we'll all buy it, if you do it that way, they're like, yeah, but I can get 10 million times more if I do it my way. But we get them in the long run. So Jennifer, I know that you're president of the MIT Anime Club. Yeah. All right, so I, I'm pretty sure that MIT has one of the largest collections of anime and manga for a college club, probably in the United States. But of course, the people attending the club are really into fan subs and kind of the downloading scene. So like, what do you do there? I wonder how much of this I can actually reveal, but I guess it's okay. Um, so, it is definitely difficult. I a couple of, no, not a couple of years, like maybe eight years ago, before I was even around, um, we were able to fill lecture halls. Well, no, I say we. I mean, the club was able to fill lecture halls to the point that there was like standing room only. And then now, like fast forward several years, that's not the case at all. And in terms of the lecture hall, like how many people? Um, well, the one that like six one twenty, I think, is seats. I want to say like maybe 150, 200. I'm really bad with estimation, but yeah. So um, for for stuff like that, I, I think that like um, the the fact that things are more available is is one thing, but um, because in the past, especially like you know decades ago, um, we had like all these VHS tapes that people um, bought and donated, and um, that was like the only way that people get manga. Um, but because of that, I, I don't. I don't really see it as like, I don't see fan subs as the problem necessarily. I think that like as a club, we've had to adapt and we've had to do it in I think positive ways. Um, in that we need to we need to emphasize the social aspect because it's like 
Um, in terms of just, in terms of being a club, we don't exist just, just to show anime. We exist to like add the social aspect. That's why people are coming to cons rather than just, you know, uh, watching anime in in their rooms and stuff like that. I mean, it's been something that's been difficult for us because we've had dwindling numbers. But I think just like the industry, we're gonna we have to evolve. So. Well, yeah, I know that you've been involved in anime Boston for a while. That's um, true. How do you deal with many fans here, especially because uh, most of your cohort is of the younger generation. I mean, I am a bazooka at them, but <laughs> that's, a, that's a personal tactic. Um, I try to stress, especially to younger fans who are wildly enthusiastic to a degree of being off-putting, that for the majority, <laughs> that, that for the majority of people who see anime Boston while walking by, a lot of them don't even know what the words manga or anime are. And when someone is in the elevator and asks what's going on, you say it's an anime con, they say what? And you have to explain it's fans of Japanese animation. To that extent, when I'm trying to deal with somebody who's being a little over the top, I present it this way. You right now are an ambassador. You're an ambassador for a culture that the people walking by don't really understand and haven't met before. This is our anime fan culture. And you have the opportunity to stand there with your wild, incredibly spiky orange hair and explain to them articulately why this is awesome and why they should think it's cool and thus by implication why when their kid picks out their first manga they should think it is okay. Or you can freak them out by acting like an idiot and then when their kid picks out their first manga they will say no and they will take it away and they will tell the kid to go do something else and that's bad. If one thinks of oneself as an ambassador who should be on their best behavior, demonstrating to people why this is interesting and awesome, comport oneself with dignity in that way. And people do rise to that, even people who are a little wild will rise to that challenge, because it is an important thing that we're doing. As a teacher, particularly, I'll often be talking to parents of students, um, and then they'll come to me and say, my kid is into this Japan thing, and I don't understand it, and it kind of scares me. And I always say, how lucky you are. Your kid could be into drugs. <laughs> Your kid could be in a band that's obviously not going anywhere. Your kid is in school. I don't know. There are bands that are going. Hey, I'm in a band. I'm in three bands. Two of them are not going anywhere. But making them learn about a foreign language, learn about a foreign culture, be interested in art, in drawing, in media. There are so many anime fans who move from this into acquiring business skills, getting entrepreneurial in the dealer's room, learning how to use online skills which then have business applications. It's a hobby any parent should be delighted their kid is into because it actually teaches you things and makes the kid want to learn things. But again, as a fan, when you're in front of someone who doesn't know what it is, you have to comport yourself as an ambassador and not run amok and go after them with a squirt gun because that is not going to encourage them to encourage their kids in this direction. So when you have these tiny little nudes, yes. uh, very innocent ones at that, um, how do you shape them from becoming obsessive fans that are complaining about the lack of Sama in their manga? <laughs> Calm tone of voice? No. The, um, again, by reminding them that the manga world is larger than that. One of the things I think which tends to make fans extremely hardcore is the, uh, not, not hardcore, but extremely uh, obsessive seeming, is a tendency to become insular. Mm. Particularly a tendency for people within a particular club or a particular group of friends or a particular area 
they'll, they'll establish their own mental list of what is the anime canon and what is not and what is important and what isn't. And it's very easy for that to happen. I remember when I was in college and that happened. And you'll sometimes encounter someone who will be talking about how such and such an anime is very important. And it'll be utterly untrue, but they'll believe this sincerely because it's important in their small circle. You then talk to these people about how different it is in other places, how different it is in Japan, how the characters in series that are the most popular here are not the same as in Japan or anywhere else. The most popular anime in Italy is Rosa Versailles. You know, and, and you tell that to people and think, and then the, the young people will start to realize the anime world is a lot bigger than it seemed. It's a lot bigger than their club and their friends. So if we're talking about uh, insular fandom, Ed, uh, how do you feel about keeping manga titles in Japanese? Like keep, keeping them in Japanese? So, I mean, there seems to be a trend <laughs> where you have to romanize the Japanese title instead of translating it and fans oh. get pretty pissed when you... Oh, oh wow. Um, you mean the actual title of, of yeah. the series? Yeah, I mean, like, like what's the industry perspective on all of this? Bakatotex. <laughs> To, its, to their maximum at, some, at points. Um, but uh, you know, once I got into the industry, once I started working for Kodancho, once I started uh, working for uh, Viz and, and Vertical, uh, I ended up realizing that um, things like titles uh, are pretty arbitrary. Actually, uh, it's, it, this, is a good, this is a pretty good story, a little random, but um, when I had my, my first interview with Kodansha to work uh, at Morning, uh, the publishers of Vagabond and uh, Zipangu and titles like that, um, the editor-in-chief there, uh, Eiji Oshimada, was really drunk and he was feeding me uh, Korean barbecue. And uh, he, 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 he said, um, you know, uh, Sometimes when, when we make up titles, um, we really just make them up. We make them up just because they sound cool. Um, and, a, and a perfect example of that would be Vagabond. Uh, Vagabond doesn't make, according to, to him, and he's been working in mourning uh, for about two-thirds of my life, um, you, when, when, when the title for Vagabond was suggested, uh, it was only it was only selected because it was the coolest sounding of the five titles that people had, had uh, picked. Uh, it was also um, the only one that was in English. And uh, anyway, the the author uh, when he found out about it, he was like, "Perfect! This is exactly why I wanted to work with Morning. Uh, if I worked at Shonen Jump, you know, they would have they would have come up with something else. They possibly would have wanted me to obsess over it." Uh, and actually, the funny thing about that is, um, since then, uh, and even since I've been working at Vertical, um, I'm actually the person who gives all English titles some morning properties, uh, whether they get translated into English or not. So titles like Giant Killing and the like, uh, they, 
they're, they're not all that relevant. People shouldn't necessarily hang their hat on to these things. Um, but um, you know, they, they are meaningful to, to, to not only um, the fans, but to the creators as well. Uh, they're very meaningful to the publishers. Obviously, they're uh, an avenue for revenue. Uh, but, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, coming from a, an industry side uh, and having had to change titles in, in the past, um, we're doing this uh, to, to, to benefit the authors, uh, to make sure that they have the best opportunity to sell their books, to sell their property. And if we keep a title like Tatsunospika in Japanese, when it can simply be translated as Twinspika, uh, you know, we, we will change that title. And uh, we, we, will not, we will not hesitate. Uh, and starting to you know, move a little bit off, off, of, off of the original uh, topic, but you know, to, to sell things like Chief Sweet Home to more, to more readers. Uh, you, it's up to the publisher, the localizer, but they will make their own choices. Whether they will alienate the fans, uh, that is all on them, but uh, in, in that case, uh, myself and the author decided to flip that title. And it was to our men. Uh, it's a New York Times bestseller. And if you, know, you fans out there do not want to read that, um, you know, we, we apologize, but uh, you know, we, we'd rather have more readers, have more fans, and uh, we've been successful with that. But they would say one thing. Exactly. My kids are reading cheap. Yeah. It's a gateway to other things, and that's what you want. Sometimes you have to sacrifice the title. Absolutely. You don't and sacrifice what the Japanese right. name, though. Right. I mean, you, and, you, and in those cases, you, yeah, you, you do sacrifice a, a few uh, fans, and mind you, as Chris said before as well, there will be fans who will nitpick about almost anything. Uh, and in those cases, uh, you know, better to pick up many more fans and many more readers in the long run, uh, and maybe win over um, you know, some hardcore fans as well. But Clarissa, and I know that you've ranked with, about this with AWO thousands of times, you want quality stuff. So... Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I, I think that some of it is... In terms of when a licensor is looking at bringing something over, I, I think one of the key things is, is that you should be able to, you know, if you're picking the right titles, you should be able to, you know, be able to, to sell that with that and, and sell it to the, the target audience without having to change things too radically. I mean, maybe in some cases there's going to be some exceptions because, yeah, Japan has different standards for what's acceptable for people in certain age groups than America does. It's unfortunate, and as much as I you know, think that those kinds of attitudes should be challenged, a publisher who's trying to sell something that needs to make money and wants something to be popular, you know, they're not going to necessarily want to pick that battle. And I can't, it would be great, you know, if they would decide to, but I can't reasonably expect 
Um, but I think a lot of it is in just don't pick a title that you need to do that much to. Like, one of the things that really annoyed me was um, the way the changes that they made to Cardcaptor Sakura when they brought it over as Cardcaptors. And I think that's a case where it's an issue of that show should not have been selected. Okay, because some of the things that they changed was, you know, they tried to re-edit it to make it into a boys show. It's clearly a show for girls. Why are you going to chop out the initial first string of episodes so that you can make it seem more like the boy is the lead character? Bring over a show for boys if that's the market that you want to sell to. So some of that is just, you know, I, and I don't know why companies even do that. Why would you want to put in the effort required to make the, that many changes to a show instead of just picking a title that's more appropriate to begin with for your target audience? Yeah, um, if I can add to that, I think that um, obviously I don't think very many kids would have watched uh, Pokemon if they called like Bulbasaur, Fujigirane, and stuff like that. Um, but I think that it's important for uh, this is. <laughs> I think that I think that's important to note the difference between when um, a publisher or a licensor um, does changes for like reasons that are actually sound like market research uh, proven kind of research, I guess is a little unfair because a lot of these companies are really small and they probably can't afford to do giant studies and things like that. Um, but at the same time, I think that there are some translators who, or not translators, but like some licensors who just do what they think is best. Um, examples of this would probably be Tokyo Pop, which obviously has had its demise, but um, if you've read Tokyo Pop titles, a lot of them have a lot of slang that uh, is, would probably be relevant maybe like in the 80s, but certainly not today. <laughs> so, I mean, I can understand wanting to localize it and make it um, more attractive to kids, but, or to young people, um, but if you're going to do that, it might be better to make sure what you're doing is actually correct. Uh, I'm sure I can think of several other examples of this, I just can't off the top of my head right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, another factor with the localization is that even what localization means is rapidly changing mm -hmm. because of the internet speeding the degree to which things move from country to country and continent to continent. So when you're talking about localizing something into English, that used to mean America very isolated from Australia, very isolated from England, very isolated from everything else. That's much less true now. Additionally, huge numbers of people in all sorts of countries read English as a second language, which means, again, the distribution networks are bizarre and complicated and growing awkwardly, but what localization means is very different language group by language group beyond other things, and so is how you adapt something for fans within different language groups. If you want a bizarre manga experience, walk into a bookstore in Switzerland because they carry all of the manga in English, German, French, and Italian. And you go in and it's like there are four different dimensions of manga going on around you, and it's really bizarre. And there are these huge walls of glittering 1970s shoujo that's been out of print in Japan forever, that's, that's lively in Italian. And then over here in French, there are gigantic omnibus hardcovers of 
Jiro Teneguchi manga, which are so mind-blowingly boring. <laughs> and yet they win international awards in France every single year. Because different yeah. language groups consume incredibly differently. And something that will be a runaway bestseller in one country will be for a different market in different countries. For example, Princess Tutu became a gradual underground great popular hit in certain ways in the US. It took a long time because the title was terrible and the box art had tutus all over it. But it, it, it did that. In Italy, Princess Tutu is sold with candy in the box uh, at street corners with a motto across the top saying, La più magica ballerina del mondo, the most magical ballerina in the world. And it's marketed for five-year-old girls. And if you've seen Princess Tutu, it should not be. But, but in Italy, think this is great. And five-year-old girls in Italy think this is great. It's just a completely different process, but what that means is changing because of the internet and because of the degree to which releases are becoming more international. So what it means to localize something doesn't mean today what it meant a couple years ago, and it's going to mean something completely different a couple years from now. I think it's also tricky because format makes a difference too. So it's harder with manga because with a DVD or a Blu-ray, you have the opportunity for multiple language tracks, you have multiple subtitle tracks, so you can have the original Japanese audio and a dub. You could even theoretically have multiple dub tracks specialized for different audiences. You could have, you know, subtitles in all kinds of different languages. And so people can select like which version they want. With manga, it's, it would be so difficult to put out multiple parallel editions of the same manga in order to satisfy different audiences. So it, it's a lot more difficult, I think, with manga. But, but it's also, you know, in terms of like, if you look at localization for video games versus manga or anime, if you have a manga or, or an anime product, um, you can put in things like translation notes. Whereas for a video game, if you're playing a video game, particularly um, if it's a handheld title, translation notes are really functionally impossible. So for example, you know, I often like translation notes um, to explain you know, if a character's name is a reference to something or if it's a pun. Um, but in, for example, a game like Phoenix Wright, you know, where normally I might complain about all of the names being changed and all of that stuff, because it's a portable video game and those kinds of translation notes are just not really feasible, I think that it's better that they went with the decision to alter the names. I mean, they preserved the basic themes and they tried to get similar types of um, meanings behind what they were doing. But I mean, yeah, for that kind of format, you have to do it that way. Well, translation notes also cost more money. Yeah. You have to pay whoever does the notes, and you have to pay mm -hmm. the people who check the DVD menus on which you select the notes. Yeah. And this, you know, even in a manga, you have to pay for the paper for the extra pages in the back. Right. If we're only selling 2,000 copies of a DVD, exactly. the fact that you're spending a couple hundred dollars to put in a note is significant against the sales. Yeah. And, and I, too, it, it's also a matter of quality. I mean, if you have a good translator, a good, a really good translator can make changes to something to suit the localized audience while still really retaining 
the robust meaning that's supposed to be there or, you know, carrying it over. So, you know, if you have a translator that's really awesome, like Alexander O. Smith, I'm a lot more forgiving of ways that he might make changes or fudge things or localize things for a Western audience. Whereas, you know, there are some cases where it seems it's obvious that the person who was translating this um, just didn't really even know what they were looking at. And so there are certain things that are just flat out errors. Um, I mean, I've seen subtitles, like I think the, the DVD subs for Mazenkaiser were one of those things where um, like basic terms for like the names of different mecha and things like that were mistranslated, like they were just wrong. Um, and uh, the Genshigen manga had some of that problem too. Like uh, they they made slight changes to some of the names of things, and uh, the the people doing the translation notes did not really correctly identify what they were really properly references to. So it was kind of a mess. And in that case, it's like that's well, just bad quality. Frequently, the notes for practical reasons are not done by the translator; it's done by right. somebody else, and then it can't actually explain what happened. I think that um, possibly one of the big causes of this controversy is just because people see what fans can do, and they see that you know fan like fan lovers are putting flashing these things like these liner notes on the screen and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and even not even just with localization, um, like there's a lot of fans who really prefer the shiny karaoke kind of things, whereas uh, I feel like a lot of older fans are really hate that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> um, but I mean, a lot of it is just like this expectation of. You know, these people aren't even getting paid. Why are they able to do this thing while people who, companies who have money, and of course there's like this, this impression that, you know, like Tokyo Pop or whatever, these companies are rolling in dough. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, like, I think that that's probably where like, some of the big disparity was. Oh yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of misunderstanding, I think. You know, people are like, well, this uh, fan sub group or scanlation group can release it like a day afterwards. Like, yeah, they don't have to sign any contracts or negotiate them. They don't have to, you know, pay licensing fees. Of course, if you don't have to do any of that stuff, you can do it instantly. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of... I, I think that's part of the difficulty is it's not... It's not as simple as saying, well, it's just fan entitlement versus it's just these companies that are just awful and doing all these bad things. There's all of these nuances. So um, there's a lot of fans that just don't understand some of those logistics and don't, you know, um, get some of these. And there's a lot of fans, too, that they can't tell the difference between a good translation and a bad translation. You know, they say, like, oh, the fan subs are so much more accurate, but they don't know. They don't know Japanese. They can't tell. Yeah. All right, that's a perfect question. Um, so again, uh, we move on to the points round. Um, we'll go down the line. If you like what someone said, raise your hand. I'll choose you, and then you get to name an anime series. We'll plug it into Google, and the number of points that that person gets are the number of hits that appear. Um, so let's start with Chris. Anime. All right. Uh, there are no. Oh, there. there. <laughs> it does not exist. 6.42 million. Really? So, yeah, that's I just expected a lot more. Yeah. Like, how could you test got, like, what? Alright, for Ed. I would expect. Sorry? Gintama. 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 What? What? I like that. I like that. 6.12 million. It's not going to score high, but it's a good choice. For Jennifer. 
what do you identify as? And do you have a cohort of passionate fans? Is it the older fans? Are, are you into the younger fans? Like, interesting and I want there to be new people who are coming in and keeping everything going. Um, I mean, I think that there are certain kinds of general patterns that I've seen. Um, most of the people I've seen that are newer, and a lot of times this does overlap with younger in age, um, are the, do tend to be often resistant to watching older series, or they're not as interested in like the history of the medium. Whereas I think a lot of that comes with the more time you spend, like the more things you get under your belt, and a little bit of age too. But of course, you always have to keep in mind that you can't completely pigeonhole people. You know, there's always exceptions, and you always have to be willing to take people as individuals. 
So you can't just dismiss people because they're newer or because they're older um, and assume that they're going to be a certain way. You always have to be open. So, so Ed, uh, you have had experience with Japanese fandom. Is, do we have the same kind of divisions over there? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, uh, I mean you, you could be my age, you know, mid to early 30s and still you know, be a fan of modern anime. But at the same time, I think equally we can wax you know, poetically about you know, anime 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, you know, it's, you can see that just as readily at, at events like Comica, where, um, you know, yeah, whatever is hot right now might pick up good parts of the convention center, but uh, at the same time, you can still see you know, plenty of, uh, of uh, Tezuka and Takahashi, and you'll see music still being rendered into Dojinshi. You'll also see things that are much more random, much more obscure, and I think that's the good thing about you know, being, uh, you know, being a mature fan. Uh, you know, obviously, if you're just coming into uh, fandom early on, you most likely be initiated uh, by something that is popular, trendy, current. Uh, but giving given a little bit of time and becoming become fanatic, uh, maturing in your uh, fandom, uh, then you can start to really branch out. And I see that, you know, obviously Japan has been uh, developing, you know, they've, they've had the anime and manga culture uh, for many more decades than over here. Uh, so that has matured in leaps and bounds uh, compared to what we see here. But in many ways, I mean, even though this, what's interesting is even though the, uh, the Western uh, fandom is you know, about half as old as the Japanese, um, we've advanced in many ways as well. I mean, we have I mean, these conventions like this, they're very different from what we see in Japan. Um, the fan conventions over there are really just fans sharing um, their creations and not so much, well, there is some socializing. It isn't as prevalent as it is over here. Um, you don't see panels like this. You don't see this type of dialogue uh, research as much. Uh, it does exist, but it doesn't happen at the con. I mean, those things, those, there are little breakoffs that happen. They're pretty exclusive. Um, so, I mean, there are pluses and minuses uh, having a, a new fandom and an old fandom. And I think the cool thing is, is that um, going back to just having uh, a core that has experienced um, for this fandom for a while, they're actually very curious about what we're going through right now. And a lot of these people are now like, actively coming over here to research us. And I think that's, um, you know, I think that's possibly the most beautiful thing about this whole thing, um, old or new. So here's a, here's a question for everyone. Um, with the rise of Moe and cute titles over the past decade, is there anything for older fans anymore? Uh, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll start that off as, as, a, as a fan of, of Moe and cute things and, and things a lot more 
stream. Um, of course, of course. Um, I mean, the, it's, it's really whether you want to pursue those things or not. Um, as I mentioned before, we were talking about uh, the scene issue at home. Uh, and Chris mentioned this much more eloquent than I, than I did, but there is so, there's just much more breadth of content there for older fans right now. I mean, you can, you, know, you can have your salary on manga, you can have your, your, your manga about you know, fishing, uh, golfing, uh, being a fireman. Um, at least in Japan, a lot of people make it over here. Well, absolutely, but I, I mean, technology has kind of and as we mentioned before, has given people a lot more access to that. It's not ideal. I mean, it's also not, uh, it's not going to solve everything because, you know, uh, you might, maybe that fireman manga is not going to be scanned, or, or that, you know, that salaryman anime is not going to be uh, fan so. But um, there, is, there is still plenty, there's almost, there's almost an abundance of stuff for uh, us Oyaji and, uh, But um, you know, it, it does it does take a little more legwork and it does take a little more uh, devotion to that fandom. Yeah, I, I wonder if it isn't more tied to the genre and that just gets conflated with age because a lot of the people who are older fans who have been in it for a long time are the people because anime fandom kind of grew out of sci-fi fandom and so a lot of the long-term fans are people who are also sci-fi fans. And that's kind of how they came to it. Um, and there's not as much of that kind of stuff coming out anymore. Like the kind of like, you know, sci-fi things that were coming out really heavily in the 80s and like the early 90s, you don't see as much of that. And so I think that's actually where a lot of the stuff with the older fans versus the newer fans might be coming in is it's more genre based that well they're not making that sci-fi stuff anymore. Is that explicit to western fans or american fans? Or? I don't know I mean I, I haven't had a chance to talk to enough Japanese fans to really get a feel for that about whether there's a lot of Japanese fans who feel the same way. I know it's not um, true of most Europeans. Yeah I mean maybe Maybe not, given that, I mean, I know my friends and I were lamenting the fact that Redline was so horribly unsuccessful in Japan. Um, and I mean, that's kind of exactly that sort of title that, you know, the 80s and the 90s, like, fandom kind of thrived on. And, I mean, it's, it's not doing very well. Yeah, on the other hand, you have a title like Nodame Katabile, which is, like, possibly the biggest yeah. anime in Japan over the last... Like, I mean, overall anime manga sure. property over the last like five years, obviously targeted to older women. Yeah, and it's a great title. And it's, I mean, it's just great, but it yeah. doesn't appeal to fans here. So, Chris, are you like struggling not to give bad reviews to stuff nowadays? <laughs> no, it, it's a thing of it, there's part of me that says nothing good has been made since 1985. <laughs> 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 you waffle back into that, but you know, fans today, especially in Japan, because that's what's still driving the market. They're not driving our market. They're making shows for themselves first. And what yeah. the anime audience wants, because you have a couple of your late night shows, your odd stuff like Noitama and everything, but most of it is for younger fans, college age kids that want to see cute, adorable little girls in panties. <laughs> <laughs> and you know that's what's being simulcast. That's what's appealing over here, and it drives a lot of the older fans crazy because that's not what they want. Yeah. They grew up on the science fiction that we said, 
They grew up on the kinds of comedies like Here I Say Yes or Oh My Goddess in the 90s, Bubblegum Crisis, things that were blending everything. And that has largely disappeared, which is why that generation of fans is sometimes resentful, gone, angry, or they're just watching the girls. <laughs> Ada, can you perhaps speak to older female fans? Um, interesting. I, in terms of the female slice of anime fandom in the U.S., there is it's particularly unique because manga brought girls into comic book stores where they had not been in comic book stores traditionally mm -hmm. in the U.S. forever. And it brought a lot more women into science fiction and into fantasy. Yeah. So they came in not through Hard SF, right. but through something completely different that they were getting from all of the very interesting gender stuff that happens in manga that doesn't happen in American comics. And that has brought in a different slice. But that slice, I think, is, is related to, to something that's a separate factor. There is a much larger portion of casual manga and anime consumers who would never consider themselves fans in the current young population than there was in what is now the older population when they were the same age group. There are large, large numbers of teenagers and college students in the US who have never been to an anime convention and who are at their colleges and have never set foot in the college anime club, but nonetheless read some manga and watch some anime without considering themselves fans. I actually do tests for this um, when I teach because I'm quite out as being a professor who is also an otaku at the school. And so there are some kids that I'll run into in the anime club. But when I get two-thirds of the way through the semester in a course, I have this wonderful business jacket. That's a very serious business casual jacket that I can wear in front of my colleagues. And they would never in a million years realize that it is, in fact, a Naruto tuning uniform jacket <laughs> modified to look like business attire. And so I walk into the classroom in this, and I see how many of the kids' faces go, and it's more than half, despite the fact that by this time I know which three students are the three students that are in the anime club and they come after me after class mm. and talk to me about this. But more than half of them know enough to recognize a Naruto uniform. There's a huge portion of casual consumers of this stuff yeah. that are not part of a fan community, even when there is one readily present for them to participate in. That did not exist. And they're coming um, from TV, earlier. too. Yeah. Like, Naruto was, and so yeah. it was on Disney XD and things like that. Yeah. Well, they're in college, they just came from that audience. Well, that's part of why there's a lot of been, there's been a lot of concern about, um, you know, Cartoon Network getting rid of the Toonami block, and the Cartoon Network is showing less anime because a lot of those casual people, TV is, like, the easiest way for them to get into it because a lot of the streaming sites you kind of have to know what you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I'm wondering if we're going to lose a lot of those casual people if we can't get more anime on television. Yeah, I mean the, yeah the television is what the kid who has come home from school and turns on the television will watch any yeah. animated thing that is in front of those. Sailor Moon, Dragon Ball. It doesn't Ball. matter whether it's the magic school bus or whether it's Gintama, <laughs> if it's on. And if it's not anime, then that person is not going to taste the fandom and have the potential of going in that direction. But not everyone who tastes of it then becomes what they would call a fan, even though they are a significant consumer, both commercially and actually of the media. Right. All right, so unfortunately, we're out of time. So let's do a quick last round of points. Uh, why don't we start with Ava again this time? Ava All right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. All right, for Clarissa. Blackjack. See what I did there? Fourteen point seven million. Thank you, Carl. Yeah, do one word. That's what we'll do. Oh yeah. For Jennifer. Like R E C. R E C. Well, down to C1 too. Looks like Jennifer wins. Wow. 